0: Radicals in Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press, with Neda Tarani, Malia
1: Buatia, and Matt Myers. Hello and welcome to episode four of Pluto Press, Radicals in Conversation. I'm Neda and today I'm joined by Matt Myers, author of the book that we're discussing today, Student Revolt, and former NUS President and Black Students Officer, Mania Buatia. If you could both tell us a little bit about the book and background on how the protests emerged, that would be great.
2: Sure. The motivation for starting the project uh, five years after the protests had finished was because I felt that that generation, the generation that made the movement, their experiences, their memories would be lost unless someone collected them. I had no intention to create a book out of it. Um, when I started, I just wanted to conserve the memories that might well have been lost. I also thought that five years after the movement, it allows a certain amount of time of distance, um, a special emotional distance from a movement that was quite... Well, it ended in a tragic way. The students lost lots of the um, groups that were a part of it, friendships groups especially, broke up under the, the weight of that defeat. So it was both uh, further enough that allows an element of distance but also close enough that people's memories uh, are still keen. So I did a number of interviews, I think around the 60 mark. It then developed into a full-length book project. It aimed to, in the words of E.B. Thompson, rescue a movement from the condescension of posterity that five years after, or now seven years after, it's often easy to cast a shadow on former movements, especially ones that lose as being worthless, utopian, etc. But I wanted to show that, in fact, that generation that made the movement created something that was beautiful when it, while it lasted and was also indicative, I think, of the wider change in British society, which we're still seeing unfolding today. A new generation's coming of age politically under, under austerity. Um, I think if we want to understand what's happened, especially in the June general election this year, I think there would be no better place to start than the 2010 student movement, uh, the first major protest against austerity.
0: I think that when Matt first spoke to me about the book, I thought it was incredibly important and particularly at a time when we'd had... For the first time in many decades, effectively a left wing slate elected into the National Union of Students leadership, um, which for many was quite surprising, because if there was any time to strike, someone would have said it was 2010. And yet it took, what, five years uh, for us to, to kind of develop a base and to lead the movement through the National Union. And we were all the generation of 2010 that period defined us politically, um, particularly given that before that, a lot of the anti-war protests from, you know, um, against the war in Iraq, against the uh, the attacks on Gaza, Operation Karstead was a really defining moment, particularly for students of colour, students from liberation background, Muslim students that were, you know, um, dealing with the brunt of anti-terror legislation. Um, the the revolts of 2010 swept us up and helped us define our political realities and what it is that we wanted to shape and change. And I think it was an incredibly formative time um, for many young people that were otherwise so completely disengaged from the political realities and structures and and the desire and and willingness to take on and to hold to account our government. Hmm.
2: No, I think that's I think that's totally right. An issue I really wanted to develop in the book was the fact that there wasn't just a movement that basically came out of came out of nothing, seemingly. It was a generation that had previously been thought of being apathetic, disengaged, out of touch with politics as such, but twenty ten proved that it was just the politicians who were out of touch, not the young people. Young people were very conscious of their interests. But I wanted to say was that some commentators at the time, it was very easy to see in this movement something totally new, something that just emerged out of the blue. But I wanted to say that, in fact, look, if you go on the subtext inside of these movements, these activists who are involved, the people involved, in fact, you see a number of different streams, Experiences that have been built up over years, the activism of previous generations that seem hidden. And this is why we did want to stress that well, the forming event of the 2009 occupations um, in solidarity with the Palestinians, Operation Cast Lead, in fact, many of the students involved learned how to occupy through those uh, occupations. In fact, you had both new forms of organizing, new ways of understanding struggle, interacting in a very creative way with older forms of... Uh, of, of politics and older, older experiences.
1: So the book takes a very distinctive approach. It's an oral history. How important do you think this approach is for a book of this kind?
2: Well, I think oral history is the only way that one could tell the story of 2010. Mm-hmm. I think the 2010 generation didn't want anyone to speak for it. They've had p- politicians attempt to speak for them, and they've been betrayed, especially the Liberal Democrat betrayal was they really the defining motif, uh, myth of the, of the protests. No politicians could claim to represent them. The Labour Party in tuition fees. The Conservatives were key in tripling them. The Liberal Democrats had betrayed their electoral promise. And certainly they didn't want anyone to impose meaning from outside on their own experiences. They wanted their experiences to define themselves. Therefore, the only way you can really make a history of that movement is by allowing people to speak. And that that is why all the history came out of, was produced by that generation the 1960s, 1970s, political historians, political sociologists, political intellectuals, who wanted to foreground the experiences of the oppressed, of those who are struggling at the heart of history. Not just the history of kings, queens, politicians, etc., but history from below, it was called. And it's a very hard way of doing history. There's a lot of responsibility. You have a lot of people's experiences In your hands as a historian you're especially an all historian I sort of conceive of it um, as being the editors of experiences the chairperson of the debate that never happened it means that I really wanted to have politicians have their experiences people like Vince Cable um, interlaced with those of the college student who walked out but in fact there was a dialogue of the death at at the point in 2010 they were never in the same place to actually argue with each other but now constructing a history or actually allowed allowing them to interface of each other to have the student answer back to the politician that claimed to be creating a new higher education system in the name of these students or in the student interest i i was very influenced by the work of previous oral historians i mean this uh, Luisa Passerini, she she wrote History of the Italian, uh, 1968 generation, 1970s generation. She wrote how difficult it was writing the history of a movement from inside, because as soon as you start to write the history, the her quote is something like the the film reel of your own life un unreals. You're you're very much immersed in the experiences which you're trying to write itself and that's we've we we did an interview for the book you can just see in people's eyes they light up because those experiences they thought had been consigned to oblivion to memory that hadn't been activated become lived anew and that's the wonderful thing about all history is that it's your sources are not these dry papers in the archives they're living people and that's why it's such a liberating form of history and the only way that you could tell the story 2010
0: think it couldn't have come at a better time given the events of the general election as well I just remember seeing Nick Clegg's face and I was at, I was actually in the ITV studios and they were like "Where's that NUS president she needs to talk about this because it was just and everybody that had lived through 2010 that sense of uh, uh justice <laughs> once you know was so felt and I just thought we need to bring those stories back. People need to hear what's happening. And also because sadly it is cyclical, you know, what is what is happening and what is on the brink of happening in relation to Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party, and potentially completely redefining our future, particularly within the space of education, let alone, you know, the welfare state as we know it and and our our political processes and, and culture. Um I think it's so important for people to understand what happened, I guess, what went wrong, uh, but also to to know that it did happen and it could happen. And if you look at everybody that's, that I assume has contributed as well to the book and, you know, who is still around in some way, you know, namely through momentum and, and just generally supporting um, the shift within the Labour Party... Um, I think it's it's just, it's crucial that, like you said, we we archive it. And even on an international level, many have no idea what really took place. And this year in particular, I travelled, you know, from Canada, across Europe, the States... And that, you know, they had very little memory of, of of those protests. And I show them footage and I tell them, you know, this is what's playing out. And also because then they think that what's happened within the Labour Party or with Jeremy Corbyn is just completely out of the blue without understanding actually how much the, you know, the protests in 2010 was so defining in relation to them, what played out.
2: Mm. No, I I very much agree, I think. What we're seeing now with young people voting in their millions for Corbyn, I think it's very much imprinted by the same political conjuncture that produced things like 2010. Because young people are rejecting a future of indebtedness, of where they don't have as um, good prospects as their parents did. And they're being told by politicians who got their university tuition for free, who would buy a house um, on a, very, well, a reasonable income, that they have to pay for a crisis that they had no part in creating. And so where in 2010, they took to the streets, they occupied their universities, they took on the state. What you saw in June was they took to the ballot box. Mm. And what is so, puts a smile on my face is obviously Michael Heseltine saying that they're losing 3%, the Tories are losing 3% of their vote every year because the young people will grow up and they don't seem to be going anywhere um, with their votes. I think Mm. they're going to be solidly Labour. This is their, their, their thinking. They've created a Tory... Uh, momentum, activate. They've even referenced that they want a Tory Glastonbury because they're, they're looking for answers of why young people are not voting, why they're voting for a Jeremy Corbyn, this person they've written off as mad, bad and, and uh, dangerous. Yeah. But I think what I really would like to stress is that this didn't come out of the blue. Who was the Home Secretary during 2010? It was Theresa May. She oversaw the policing of the protest where students were kettled in Parliament Square for hours and hours, beaten up by the cops, then taken to court, put in front of trials and juries, given huge sentences.
0: case of Alfie Meadows as well. Exactly. Imprinted in our minds.
2: Yeah, exactly. And you read her speeches in Parliament. She gives absolutely no... Indication that the police behaved in the way they did and students on the ground could see how they were being portrayed in the media and see how the Conservative and Coalition politicians were talking about them and they could see that the power structure at work. But who was there speaking for the students? Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. They went to the occupations, they went to the demonstrations. There's this one, my favourite anecdote in the whole book. And I thought when I first heard it, I was like, this cannot be true. But then it was corroborated by another person. I really want to tell it. Obviously, you can you can read read about it. But uh, so on the twenty fourth of November, demonstration going down Whitehall. The police are obviously very angry because Milbank they've been shown up, and so they form this kettle at Whitehall, and this other group of students are uh, are milling around. They're facing one of the first police. Horse charges in many, many years. The horses are all lined up, the battens are drawn, the sergeant's on his walkie talkie, about to give the orders, and who comes out of the distance, probably on his way to the vote in Parliament or to swing the mace around or whatever, is uh, John MacDonald. And the students go, John, 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 come over. And so he sits down with the students, puts arms in arms with the students, takes up the megaphone, starts talking to them, giving a speech about why they're so right to demonstrate, etc. The sergeant pauses walkie-talkies like, we can't do the charge now. I mean, there's a, a member of parliament. <laughs> so they pull off. That, and that and you want to understand why students are so enthused by the Labour Manifesto, why they can trust people like John McDonnell and Jeremy Corbyn. It's because they stuck up for them when it was not politically expedient to do so. They did so because it was right. These things don't come out of the blue. History isn't important for these reasons.
1: So how do you think that the changes to higher education, um, including the tripling of education fees, how has that changed the experience of being young and how is that shaping new political subjectivities today?
0: I think in many ways the tripling of the fees has also come with the scrapping of bursaries and grants um and it's meant that even the most unlikely of groups healthcare students although I'd argue otherwise but you know the way that it's depicted is that you know they're the least likely to join protests or to revolt against it and we've seen them the nurses junior doctors lead amongst the biggest protests in recent years over you know more than just the questions of of NHS bursaries I think that The reality is that students are living in dire poverty should they choose the luxury of going into higher education. And we've had a lot of arguments thrown at us such as, oh, but, you know, the application numbers haven't dropped and but there is no desire to look at the retention. How many are surviving through their degrees, like literally surviving um, at times two, three jobs on the go, having to take out I don't know how many loans, but also Suffering through that and not being able to succeed in what it is that they're passionate about. Um, and in many ways as well, choosing what to study based on what is likely to get them a job at the end. And they may have absolutely no desire or passion in relation to it, and it's completely shaping it, shaping. I guess the the student body as being far more geared towards vocational studies and away from arts and humanities. But that also comes with the various cuts to those departments, staffing cuts, research cuts. Um, And I think that there is a lot of anger. And and we saw saw the fruits of that in the recent general election where students came out to vote. I remember looking at... um, that we were told there was around seven hundred and fifty thousand students that turned eighteen between the EU referendum and the general election, and you know at some point there was there was fear because they understood there was enough frustration over, you know, the given older generations voting in the way that they wanted that was defining their future. Um, that they were going to make them pay effectively in the general election, and by God, did they! And I think that we may be at the point of tripling fees, but we're also at a point where the opposition manifesto has free education as a promise, not this distant dream that is completely unrealistic and out of reach.
2: I think that's totally right. I think that pick on the last pick up on the last point. I think it's one of the most extraordinary turnarounds in British history and on a level of policy that there's been over tuition fees, having been the totally hegemonic understanding of higher education on all sides of the political spectrum, Labour Party included, to being now being questioned by people like um, Dominic Green, um, by Andrew Adonis of all people, the Labour Party um, intellectual that was one of the key militators for for the policy. Even he has turned around and said, now we need to have free education. Why is that? It's not down to solely I've read the policy papers and uh, finally I've come to my senses. It's because young people have actually proved that they're actually so angry with the system as it, as it is and it's totally unsustainable. So the actual agency of millions of people, millions of young people actually does change things. Mm-hmm. I think the turnaround has been absolutely extraordinary and you've really got to root that in the history of, history of 2010. I would say on how changes in higher education have transformed I, subjectivities, especially um, in universities, I think it's made it very much harder to organize as activists on campus, because when you have £50,000 worth of debt hanging over you when you leave university, obviously that's going to change your relationship to your teachers, it's going to change your relationship to your institution. You are paying, essentially, you are creating, Um, it's an investment of sorts in your own human capital. And like all investments under capitalism, you are going to look for returns. Mm -hmm. You're going to look for the highest return uh, for the minimum amount you put in and who are to facilitate that, but your lecturers, they become service providers rather than equals in which you can engage with and see education as Mm -hmm. as something that's a good, that's a right in itself, that's a liberating thing rather than something that is going to add to your CV. And obviously, if you've got £50,000 worth of debt hanging over you, you're going to have to fight really hard, especially in this job market, to find good jobs. So why would you go on a protest and miss your classes in order to fight for free education when you've got all this pressure hanging over you uh, to succeed? Um, So the very ideology of neoliberalism is geared into the very experience of being a student in Britain today. So it's on the one hand made being an activist Um, on campus much harder but it doesn't mean that that experience has been submerged or put under the carpet in fact it's blown up in other ways students have then taken to the ballot box but they see that in fact a Labour Party manifesto um, committed to free education can maybe make the breakthrough where students as as hard as uh, they fought uh, in the streets weren't able to make the breakthrough so I think it's reshaped in contradictory ways, these changes, the tripling of tuition fees and the experience of education, but doesn't mean that they've totally dampened out activism, but it's just reshaped in different ways.
0: But more than that as well, there's also the concerted effort to shut down spaces, political spaces where they can organise. The casualisation of like our lecturers, our teachers, our staff has meant that the burden on them and their abilities to otherwise organised on campuses with students is is becoming less and less of a reality and we're seeing victimisation left, right and centre. If staff are working with students against the prevent agenda, they're working against cuts to a particular department, um, if they are even daring to question, you know, reinvestment in, in particular areas as opposed to uh, you know, the the glossy brochures and the open days to entice rich international students or something like that. All those things are being so aggressively targeted and student unions as well we've seen there is such a concerted effort to depoliticize those spaces and unfortunately you know we had previously NUS leaderships that were more than happy to to kind of to guide wave of of you know become service providers and you know uh, a space where you sell cheap drinks as opposed to a space where you're actually like unionizing um and and taking any kind of action and then beyond that as well the way that particular groups are being targeted the question of surveillance of monitoring of suspensions of students um the treatment of international students that are rowdy everybody is in fear because it's not paranoia. They are being targeted for daring to speak up and to take forms of action. I think that's probably actually one of the biggest challenges is that we've seen this huge desire now and we've seen its effect in the general election. But, like, mass organising needs to take place in some way or form. Otherwise, we will lose on the front of the Labour Party and the wider kind of policies and people become disillusioned. And, yeah, the failures of 2010,
1: like may repeat themselves, unfortunately. On the subject of the failures, I was going to mention, there's a chapter in the book, Why Did the Students Lose? Uh, What do you both think we can learn from those mistakes for today?
2: Well, that chapter was a chapter that necessarily needed to be written because the movement was lost. Um, I think it was lost for a number of different reasons. First, I think one that really defined the whole experience of the movement was it had come out of nothing or well, seemingly it had come out of nothing that even though there had been a lot of students involved in uh, protests before occupations really the mass politicization on British campuses had been quite low so a starting point people were having to reinvent the wheel some, sometimes I would say that the intransigence of the coalition was combined with the low level of organization uh, on campuses like the major reason is because as the uh, interviews with the politicians, Liberal Democrats like Vince Cable and Conservatives like David Willett show. In fact, they thought the protests were by the by. The protests didn't affect them at all. In fact, in some of the cases made them more likely to vote for the fee rise because they couldn't be seen to bowing for the mob outside, uh, parliamentary sovereignty, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. All this kind of stuff. That they had made the decision on fees months before. Some Liberal Democrats made them at the coalition agreement. David Willits had made up his mind on fees many years before that and he wasn't going to change his mind because of protests in the street. And we discuss what tactics we could have done differently, what students could have done differently. Um, and we play out all the different contradictions between the official movement in the NUS and the unofficial movement in the streets. Um, really, when you're coming up against a political class that was very much intransigent about their position, it was very hard to find a way out of that but what's really interesting about the total turnaround tuition fees now is that in a totally different form of political agency young people taking to the vote and threatening the very seats of the tory mps that instituted the policy now they turn around so they they ignore and repress the students when they protest in the street but as soon as their jobs are on the line Mm -hmm. then they start to take note but again the electoral turnaround cannot be seen outside of the movement in the streets. That yeah. They're not. You can't separate out one from the other. That's why I think the movement in the streets, on, on the campuses, in the communities has to be maintained for this electoral breakthrough that we've seen, this policy manifesto being so popular. In order for that to win or to gain strength, we need to be mobilising outside, inside and outside parliament.
0: There were also other factors. There was even, like, amongst like the trade union movement you know initially there there wasn't really a particular interest in in engaging in what they thought was just kind of like a momentary student thing it like it's just the students protesting like it'll be over soon i think they completely underestimated um the impact and the length of it as well you know the occupations that happened throughout and the desire to kind of take on some of the local cuts and university vice chancellors and so on and and in some ways we weren't prepared um we understood where it came from and what the demands were but because it all kind of exploded incredibly but it exploded right before us I guess you know some would argue that the strategy wasn't always there and and defining the exact direction but I also think that the challenge of many of us on the streets, the actual movement, was that we also had an NUS president and, and leadership that was actively trying to cease all the all the activity that was happening. It was condemnation after condemnation, attempt to derail an attempt to to stop it and and can you imagine? So it's kind of like you had this double whammy of an attack, like the state's taking you on, the left wasn't as prepared as well, I don't know if we could have ever been, but, you know. And on the other hand, you had the National Union of Students itself like trying to, to kill everything in its sight. I remember one of the occasions they were they, were, they held like um, a funeral for education whilst like thousands and thousands of students were being kettled at Trafalgar Square. It
2: was a glow stick vigil. They couldn't do candles because oh, of oh health and safety.
0: Okay, but the glow, yeah the glow stick. And it's just like students are being kettled, are dealing with like the brunt of police brutality because they're daring to continue to fight, like, because it will never be over. Uh, No matter what is voted through, we will carry on fighting, we'll carry on resisting because we must. And so, I don't know, it just clarified where we were politically. And I think in some ways there's always been that out of syncness between a leadership and the movement on the ground. And who knows, maybe one of these years we'll get it right.
2: <laughs> sure. I would say that what was interesting about doing the interviews with all sections of the movement, uh, including the ex-president of the uh, NUS, Aaron Porter, and from the politicians themselves and different sections of, of, the, of the movement in the streets, was that really the difference came back to their conception of politics. The Aaron Porter, leader of the NUS, had a very different conception of politics which was much more oriented towards Parliament mm. gaining one or two votes um, from Liberal Democrats, that's where the optics, the orientation was towards Parliament, not towards how do we mobilise in the streets. And in yeah. fact, he said that Liberal Democrats were telling him, and this was confirmed with some of my interviews with the Liberal Democrat MPs, was that Liberal Democrats were saying, in fact, the movement in the streets outside is making us more likely to vote with the government because... We can't be seen to be bowing to the mob and we need to be proved in this weird convoluted logic that we, in order to look like a party of government, we have to make unpopular decisions because that's what the Labour Party has done. And look, it, they got elected a number of different times after betraying the students over tuition fees. We can do the same. We can prove that we're a party of government. So when you're trapped in that matrix of the parliamentary logic as it then stood, the movement in the streets was not the... Sledgehammer trying to crack a nut. I mean, it's where the orientation of different elements of the movement were and their conceptions of politics and agency, which made it such a combustible mix, and lots of the tensions I think comes back comes back to that. Um, but it was one of the major defects: the, the division inside the movement between its leadership that was going on television and leading the movement um, and the movement in the streets, and that was a major weakness that the politicians the coalition really seized on.
0: I remember during the attempt to oust Corbyn from his leadership, I was speaking to some Labour students that were obviously in opposition to to Corbyn as leader and were helping kind of get rid of him effectively. I just remember speaking to one of them saying, I just found it incredible. I just thought this this buzz that you have for the Labour Party, this desire that you've never had, you know in the history of the party instead of using this power instead of using this momentum instead of using all of this and channeling it to actually affect the very foundations of the party and 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 the desires like you're completely destroying what may never ever come around again in our lifetime but it was like talking to a brick wall because obviously their vision of what should take place and uh what demands i guess they seek are so far removed from those out on the street. Yeah. And it just, it made me think of NUS. I just thought, had I been president, you know, instead of Aaron Porter at the time, how I would have utilized that that movement, that power. Imagine having the full weight of the union and the resourcing and the, uh, the integrity, I suppose. And it just absolutely amazes me. And it's ironic because Aaron Porter speaks about my time as in office as being one that NUS lost its reputation. I just thought, well, your interpretation of what what a union's reputation um, should be geared towards is so far removed from what millions of students that face a, an incredibly dark future so desperately and urgently need.
1: So would you say that the protests in 2010 really shaped your politics and time as president from 2016 to 2017.
0: Totally. I would say that the student protest completely... I remember the the NUS National Conference that followed that year. I thought to myself, I've either got to stay in this space and try and kind of build the resistance or the rebellion, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as I like to call it, um, and actually try and create a union that ensures that if this time comes again that it is harnessed and that it is supported and that we give it everything that we absolutely can so we don't stand there thinking, what if, which many of us of the 2010 generation do, or we walk away and create the alternative and some of us stuck it out and many of us were elected into NUS office with a different government. And I think that, yeah, I think it was a completely defining moment because we knew what could be and we knew what was necessary and I guess it's almost like we wanted to make put in the provisions for should it all kick off again to ensure the support was there.
1: So we're coming to the end of the podcast now and it'll be interesting to hear both your thoughts on what's next for young people in Britain today.
2: Well, I think that the contradictions that we saw produce the 2010 pseudo movement haven't gone away. In fact, they've been exacerbated. Um, the experience of being young in Britain today is not very good. Many students are now leaving university with 50,000 plus worth of debt with huge interest rates that like, are absolutely astounding. It would be often illegal uh, in other, other forms of loans just because they're students living under austerity, um, they have to pay for them. And after university, they've got to, or during university and for some, in some cases, they have to spend a third to half of their income on rent In many cases, their maintenance grant doesn't account for all of their spending. They have to work precarious jobs on the side to pay for their education and probably won't be able to find long-term employment in good jobs for the foreseeable future. These contradictions are there. They're not going away. In Britain, they're being refracted politically in a progressive direction because they've been given a progressive lead by Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I think that that offers lots of hope for the future, that it's not simply the role of leaderships and what they do, although that's really important in shaping what people think is possible and necessary. But at the base level, young people are really suffering. And as soon as they've been given a chance, this horizon's opened up in front of them and they they have hope now, I think. I, I always return to this quote by Mark Fisher, which I think is just really encapsulates what it means to be political, and be off the left, he said, emancipatory politics makes the impossible seem possible and what has been said to be universal and unnecessary seem contingent. That's what emancipatory politics is. It's to say that what you've thought of as being totally wired into society itself is in fact like this a quite contingent thing. And in fact this horizon opens up when people offer you the alternative. And that's what that's what Corbin has shown. And that's what the twenty ten movement also showed it was this spark, this fire, which is still burning, I think, at the heart of British politics. I would like to finish on the quote which I chose to end the book. I didn't want the book to be this sort of epitaph for a movement, eulogising a movement that lost. In fact, I wanted it to be a a testament uh, to that generation that made it. And I used this quote by the French uh, socialist Jean Jaurès, who said... The tradition is not the worship of ashes but the preservation of fire i think that's a wonderful way of understanding history to say that past struggles even though they lost still live within us and the role of history and tradition and the way that we have to use it as activists today is to say that it lives within us it's not putting past movements on a pedestal that we'll never be able to come to terms with or we'll never be able to live up to but it said that this is our tradition these are people who've w- worked and laboured and suffered in the past, and they might have lost. But that's we keep that inside ourselves when we're, we're forging ahead in the future. And I hope that future generations of students find the experiences in the book useful in their in their struggles to change the world.
0: Not really sure how to follow that one. Mm-hmm. Um, it is strangely a, an exciting time politically to be involved, and I think it's it's very hard. Uh, not to be just because of the state of things for young people. Everywhere we turn from access to education, healthcare, employment prospects, um, even the ability to, like, get around, you know, if we look at London, the cost of public transport, everything has been set up for complacency and for total isolation. Um, And yet we've seen mass organising incredible... Creative expressions for change and for, I guess, to see the world anew and our society in particular. And I think that in many ways we may be at a stronger point that yes, the contradictions absolutely still exist from 2010, but also the experiences of 2010 are then carried with us, and that the 2010 generation is very much politically involved in every area and but wider than just you know, the support for Jeremy Corbyn and an opposition that can win on principles of, of emancipation, um, the movements through Black Lives Matter, the movements for decolonizing our societies from museums to universities to our schools and curriculum and so on, the fight within healthcare, cinema workers, McDonald's workers, you know, strikes left, right and centre... And I guess social media, for its evils, is also still allowed for the amplification of that solidarity. I remember following the general election when we you know tweeted out about the number of young people that were said to have shown up and voted. got such an overwhelming response from Americans whose political reality is incredibly depressing under Trump and and there was just and it was a cross generation saying we need some of what you're doing bring it over to us um and i think that it's the challenge is also to ensure that that we're covering the basics and what i mean by that is if our nurses are having to line up for food banks to eat and to feed their families? How are they also expected to, you know, pick up the bat and, and and deal with that fight and not deal with the consequences of that, which is potentially losing their jobs and, you know, living in even deeper poverty than they're already, um, that's already been inflicted upon them. So I think that these are all questions for our movement to respond to. Is, so we want working class communities, we want young people, we want black communities, Muslims, all to come out against austerity measures against you know all the, the the policies that have been thrown at us to to completely destroy the very essence of a free society without also responding to the very needs that are going to allow us to survive through that battle
1: well thank you so much to both matt and malia for joining us today we hope you enjoyed this podcast
2: You've been listening to Radicals and Conversation, a podcast from Pluto Press. We'd like to thank our guests, Malia Buatia and Matt Myers. Student Revolt, Voices of the Austerity Generation is available now from plutobooks.com.